You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, episode 53, with Dr. Raywin Grant. You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. What's good, people? Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Raywin Grant to the podcast. Dr. Wynne Grant is a large carnivore ecologist with the American Museum of Natural History. She's a pioneer among Black women. And she's attained a, a PhD in her field where she studies the American black bear, uh, African lions in rural Kenya and Tanzania, and grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Now, Dr. Wynne Grant has attained three degrees, including a master's degree from Yale University and a PhD from Columbia University. So, you know, she's a really smart lady uh, who's passionate and has a purpose about her. And you're going to pick up much of that from this story today. I found it so inspiring. And um, and so I won't delay much longer. Let's go ahead and dive right in. It's my hope that you guys would share the love, you know, tweet this up. Just just get the word. Help me get the word out about Dr. Raywin Grant. Thank you. Enjoy. Ray, thanks for being our featured trailblazer on today's episode. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking to you guys. So we're at the end of another day, but truly still in the beginning of a new year, right? So as you reflect on your life to this point, what are you most grateful for? Oh my goodness, that is a fantastic question. And I, my answer is not a canned answer. It's absolutely genuine, but I have a beautiful little baby girl um, who I guess isn't really a baby anymore. She's a toddler. So I have a beautiful <laughs> little toddler baby girl. She's always a um, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say it was definitely um, a very steep learning curve for me to figure out how to be a mom. I don't have any other little kids in my family, so I didn't have... Uh, a lot of experience with them, but I feel like I've got the hang of it. It's been, you know, a year and a half and I'm finally getting the hang of it, but she's, she's what I'm grateful for every single day. And I have a wonderful partner as well and my husband. And so I'm, I'm tremendously grateful for the two of them. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, everyone on Trailblazers probably knows by now that, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud papa myself. And, you know, I, I often share, even though you share that, you know, you don't have many kids, I share with new parents all the time, you know, that being a parent for the first time is the hardest job in the world with no prior work experience, right? Oh my goodness, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Some people are naturals. I am not one of them, but I'm, I'm figuring it out day by day. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're a girl that grew up in California, right? Yeah, I'm definitely a Californian. I, you know, I haven't lived there in quite some time now, um, but I was born in San Francisco nice. in the city, in the Fillmore District, to be precise. For the listeners who might be familiar with the yes. Bay Area and San Francisco, and the majority of my family is still in the Bay Area, scattered throughout different parts of the region. Nice. Was becoming a scientist a passion of yours as a kid? You know, that's a great question. So, you know, when I get asked things like that and similar questions, I have to be honest that, you know, there aren't any scientists in my family. 
And um, certainly science wasn't necessarily a topic of discussion in my household growing up. I don't have parents that, you know, sat around teaching science or talking about science at all. So I wouldn't say it was necessarily a passion of mine as a kid, but I was exposed to science and in particular environmental science and um, the natural sciences through television. So I was an urban kid and would watch, you know, nature shows on TV and just absolutely fell in love with what I was seeing on the screen. Um, I didn't necessarily relate that to science necessarily. It wasn't clear that the people going out in, you know, the field on these nature shows were scientists. I had this feeling that science was something you know, done in a laboratory. Lab coat. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Which, which it is, which certainly that's what, you know, people in lab coats do. They're right. doing science. But I didn't realize that um, scientists could have such broad careers um, and research interests. So, so yeah, I can honestly say that as a kid, I wasn't passionate about science, but I was passionate about, or I, well, I wasn't knowingly passionate about science, but I was passionate about um, a field of study that I later learned was a scientific field. And I'm so glad that I was able to make those connections. So, you know, what intrigued me most about having you on was really trying to understand the motives behind a black girl wanting to study large carnivores like lions and bears. So, Ray, tell us why you decided on becoming a wildlife biologist. Yeah, absolutely. So it, again, it stems from these um, these nature shows that I used to watch. So I was an urban kid, and I you know didn't have a family that went hiking and camping and skiing and doing all that outdoorsy stuff. Um, And I'm sure a lot of other people who grew up with black families can relate to that. But again, I watched TV and I would see these, you know, white uh, Australian or British, you know, older guys on the screen as nature show hosts trekking through the jungles and (laughs) interacting with wildlife and especially large cats. So in jungles of South America or in the savannas of East Africa, these large cats, which are, you know, large carnivores, were extremely captivating to me. I just thought they were fascinating. And I remember saying to my parents a few times, you know, I want to go to the jungle and I want to see jaguars and I want to see lions and I want to see cheetahs and I want to see leopards and I want to see all these large cats and learn about them. And, you know, that was amusing to a lot of people. My parents were always extremely supportive, but that didn't necessarily know how to make the connections to get me there and didn't necessarily know that it was a field of study that that was available to me or to young people like me. So if you fast forward over, you know, going through high school and, you know, kind of starting a pre-med track in college, I eventually was introduced to um, large mammals in East Africa through a study abroad experience in college. And it was there that I, I got hooked on on large mammals in general. I mean, you know, the continent of Africa has the largest land mammals in the world. And I think they're fascinating. And I think size just makes these animals so much more impressive. And in particular, carnivores are often perceived by the public as extremely vicious and very scary and extremely dangerous. But they face these critical conservation concerns where um, because of the way people perceive them, they're especially vulnerable to persecution by people. So there's all this human carnivore interaction. So if you think about lions and East Africa, you don't always think about them interacting with people, but they really do. Sometimes people will make deliberate efforts to keep lions away or even kill them Mm. um, because they're threatened. Same with bears that I study in North America. A lot of people are really threatened by bears. And because of that, bears face, you know, human induced mortality, which is a major concern in terms of, you know, keeping them from going endangered or extinct. So 
that that human element to the conservation of large carnivores really drew me in. And essentially, long story short, that's how I got, became a large carnivore ecologist, is that I wanted to fuse the, the human aspect with the wildlife biology aspect. And I've been able to do that fairly successfully. I, I give you a paw, Ray. You know, the Jamaican in me. <laughs> if, if I had to work around lions and bears, I don't know if my colleagues would hear hear more English or more patois. <laughs> Maybe words not suitable for the podcast or the bears. <laughs> it can be very intense work. I will definitely admit that. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> so, you know, I hear you. But, you know, are you the human in the study? And are you worried about the dangers of being in their habitat? Like, you know, are you in harm's way with with your work? You know, it's so funny. When I talk about the field work that I do, you know, being very hands-on with animals, that's usually the question that I get um, when I'm talking to non-scientists. Is right. I say, like... Are you, aren't you terrified and aren't you in danger? And isn't this scary <laughs> stuff? And I can't say that I'm not in danger. I mean, wild animals are wild animals. And so they can be unpredictable and you really have to be respectful of, um, you know, of the animals and of the ecosystems that you're working in. So that's really important. At the same time, uh, I will offer two things. One is that, you know, I'm always well, well prepared and I have a good understanding of how to keep myself safe. So, for example, there are specific measures that you take around bears, for example, that will keep you relatively safe in case you in, encounter a bear and you're, you know, in close proximity and, and, uh, and caught off guard. And, you know, I can go into detail, but essentially, you know, if you're caught off guard with a black bear, you need to make yourself look really large. You need to, you know, shout at it, that kind of thing. And if it comes down to it, you can spray some bear spray, which is essentially like mace or pepper spray their way. And they hate that kind of thing and they should run off. Um, luckily for me, most of the work I do with large carnivores, bears and lions involves um, trapping them and sometimes tranquilizing them um, just for a short time so I can take um, some samples from them. So we set uh, very large and very humane bear traps. We lure them in with some bait, some yummy, yummy food, you know, peanut butter and marshmallows and those kinds of things. <laughs> and then we'll set them in a trap. And once they're trapped, they're unable to harm us, but we're able to, to tranquilize them. So they go to sleep for about an hour. And during that time, we can take hair samples and blood samples. And I attach um, GPS collars to them, which is like a really large dog collar with a GPS tracking device that allows me to know where they are at all times, which helps me measure their behavior patterns. And we do the same thing with lions. So usually I'm working with trapped and tranquilized animals and, you know, we release them in a very careful way once they wake up. And the last thing that I will say about being afraid is that more often than not, the biggest dangers of field work involve other people. So actually people can be <laughs> a really dangerous mm. species, you know, when you're yeah. out doing field work. So usually when I'm thinking about protecting myself, it's protecting myself from anyone I might encounter in really, really remote areas of the world. Wow. Where in East Africa were you? Yeah, the work I do in East Africa is primarily in Kenya and Tanzania. Wow. So there are lion populations that live in uh, the Maasai Steppe ecosystem. Okay. And this is one ecosystem that happens to um, be transboundary, meaning it crosses two different countries. So southern Kenya and northern Tanzania are all one big ecosystem, but there just happens to be a political boundary there. And the lion populations there are, you know, endangered um, and need extra protection. And um, that's where my most of my work over there is based. Wow. So what does your typical day, I mean, like, are how much of, of your time 
in your work are you actually spending in the field versus doing research here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's so easy for me to brag about my fieldwork as if I get to do it 100% of the time. <laughs> and sometimes I wish that was the case. So I, I have to say it, it it changes, it fluctuates from year to year. You know, in the year and a half that I've had a baby, um, I certainly haven't done as much fieldwork as I do in the past, but it looks like my fieldwork is ramping back up um, by choice. And so I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about that. But I would say in general, I probably spend seven, 70% of my year outside of the field. So, you know, working in the office, doing data analysis with the data that I collect in the field, right. um, teaching courses, you know, learning new techniques and trying out new statistical software, you know, in order to do my data analysis and that kind of thing. And also, you know, I do a lot of mentorship and being based at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, you know, there's a lot of outreach that we do there. There's also just a lot that I get to learn from my colleagues. So I participate in different groups where I'm just absorbing new ecology, you know, new wildlife science from the people I work with. And then probably about 30, maybe sometimes a little more percent of the time I'm in the field. So I am in rural parts of Western Nevada studying black bears and their movement and behavior. I am in, you know, parts of East Africa studying um, similar research questions with African lions. And I actually just last month got back from a long expedition to Madagascar, where I was looking at some um, primate communities uh, of lemurs in particular and a rainforest in Madagascar. And so those field days, I mean, a day, a day in the life of a field biologist is really exciting. Um, Oh, sure. Sometimes uncomfortable. <laughs> so, you know, working in rainforests, you know, is amazing. But sometimes you're, you know, spending time peeling leeches off of your body and, Ooh. you know, or just trying to stay warm when everything is completely soaking wet and, and it's nighttime and you can't light a fire. But for the most part in the field, you're just waking up at dawn when the sun rises, usually around six and, you know, heading out for the day, trying to just maximize the amount of distance you can cover, usually on foot in a day. Tracking large carnivores is an all day, all week, all month process. So wow. certainly when I'm looking for large carnivores like bears and lions, it, it can take a long time. And many days I come back empty handed. A really cool tool that I use in almost all of my work is what we call a camera trap. So I know I mentioned before that I trap animals um, in physical, you know, barrel traps and cages. But camera traps are a great tool used by lots of different biologists where it's essentially a motion sensor attached mm. to a camera that will put in trees, you know, on the forest floor, etc. And whenever anything large walks by, it'll it'll take a couple of images. And those are really great because we can set them all over the forest and they essentially are able to collect data when we're not there. So every so often you go find the tree where you attached your camera, um, take out the card and you get to see what walked past. I mean, very often you'll get a bunch of squirrels or a bunch of, you know, raccoons or something came by. But, you know, if you're lucky, you'll find, you know, bears on your camera trap and you can identify if it's, you know, a couple different individuals of a certain species. You know, it's been really fun. I've set camera traps right up by my tent night after night and I'll see mountain lions walking by and bears and, you know, lots of different bobcats and lots of different species that you're not able to see when you're just walking around. So it's, yeah, it's really fascinating and it helps us understand the behavior of animals and, you know, the movement of species without being very invasive. 
This is awesome. This is awesome. Great. <laughs> right. I'm sure, without question, there are very few people that look like you in your field of work. And I know the journey, you know, probably has, as you just echoed, it, it feels lonely at times, right? What's been one of the biggest lessons you've learned that, you know, maybe helps to keep you going now? Yeah, that, so you took the words out of my mouth. I, um, I, I know of very few people of color at all, let alone African Americans who are involved in conservation science. The ones that I know I'm very close with, but it's, it's certainly a field that can benefit from, um, improvements in diversity um, moving forward. With that said, I, you know, I consider myself a pioneer in this way. And I think that's an honor. Um, hopefully I won't be, you know, the, the only, you know, for a while. Right. But I often spend time reflecting on African-American history. And so, you know, to be clear, my my family has been in the United States for many, many generations, as far back as we're able to, to trace. And learning and and sometimes relearning the the history and the distinct plights of Afri of black people in America often is what keeps me going i I sometimes you know sit around feeling sorry for myself that I have such an uphill battle <laughs> with so many issues in science, but I am able to remind myself that so much fighting has been going on for my benefit to even allow me to have the problems of being, you know, one of the few black women in conservation science and that my ancestors sacrificed, you know, life and limb for opportunities that they could have never even imagined me having. And, and it's those lessons and just reminding myself over and over about the people who came before me and the difficulties they faced that allow me to, you know, to continue being energetic and being um, strong to push through um, a fairly lonely and isolating um, environment. Yes, I appreciate that. That's that's awesome. You know, as a scientist, I know that you thrive on discovery. You shared this with me in, in our initial call. I, I'm yeah. curious to know, could you maybe tell us about something amazing that you discovered in your research? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, <laughs> I hope that those listening find it interesting. You never know with biology whether the biologist is the only person who's excited about this stuff. <laughs> but um, certainly, um, you know, more recently in the research I've been doing with black bears um, in the United States, I've found um, that the there are some changes in the way that I model some of the data. So uh, there's a statistical modeling technique that you right. can use that's very standard. And I actually spent some time updating this technique nice. um, and trying it in a different way that essentially allowed me to look at a very fine scale um, assessment of the landscape. So looking at the way humans have modified the landscape that bears live. And usually carnivore ecologists look at large-scale patterns of human modification. So, for example, you know, there's a big city here, there's a big city here. So, we know that big cities are going to be dangerous for these animals. Right. But if we, but if we take a finer scale um, approach, I've been able to discover that actually there are some really, really small and subtle ways that humans are influencing carnivore ecology. For example, even the presence of hiking trails in some forested areas is actually changing the way large carnivores like bears are using the landscape and they're avoiding certain areas that might have human activity, you know, once every few days or a few weeks, just 
through hikers and bikers and, you know, uh, outdoor recreation that we just weren't sure about before. You know, we knew that, that bears weren't attracted to areas with a lot of roads in them and a lot of heavy traffic, but even light foot traffic um, is actually changing the behavior of these species and causing them to select different parts of the forest. So that's a major discovery because it also has implications for some of their reproductive behaviors, like hibernating. So bears actually give birth during hibernation. Really? Oh. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain parts of the forest that might be super ideal for them to find uh, shelter for hibernation and give birth in those areas. But if there's any chance that humans might be nearby, you know, skiing or, you know, snowshoeing around during the wintertime, female bears might not choose those areas and they might choose a less desirable area for them to hibernate and give birth. And that can actually have consequences for the survival of their cubs. Mm. So again, that's, you know, that's a, that's a sciencey discovery, but it really means a lot of, you know, what kind of policies we're going to make in terms of keeping people, you know, out of certain types of habitat just to protect animals. Right. This is awesome. I'm learning so much in this interview. I need. Oh, I could go on and on. Are you kidding? Carnivore ecology is my my jam. (laughs) So, you know, often hear stats, right, about women of color being the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs today. But I'm curious to hear maybe your thoughts on, you know, what might be some of the biggest hurdles that prevent young women and people of color from pursuing careers um, in the science world, right, as scientists and researchers. Yeah, absolutely. So to be clear, I am myself, you know, getting an education on, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion issues in science. Hmm. Yeah, I've always kind of used my own personal experience as, you know, lessons for what we can do better and, you know, what we can learn. But my, you know, my personal experience is just my own and it can be very different from the experiences of other people who are trying to break into science and in particular the environmental sciences. Absolutely. Um, So, you know, it's different for everyone, but I do feel that that some of the barriers that folks of color are facing start very, very, very early on. Often in these circles, we talk about a pipeline. So, you know, you don't just wake up one day and become a conservation biologist or even a wildlife ecologist, but it, you know, it's something that that takes time and, and often takes a lot of formal education. And there's essentially this, you know, pipeline idea. And and some people are debating the, the use of that term where, you know, you, you have this linear path where you start, you know, in being interested in high school and then you pursue this field in undergraduate school and then, you know, get a master's or PhD and then boom, you're a ecologist. Um, and I find that that certainly folks um, are discouraged from even approaching a field like this very early on and probably, you know, before they even realize that it's for them. I certainly didn't receive a lot of encouragement um, as a young person to explore the outdoors or even mm. consider it as a career. And I find that uh, people of color are also um, probably discouraged from going in that direction as well. Yeah, I was wondering um, if even the awareness of, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you've shared so much right here in this call that I was unaware of, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if, if awareness could be a big issue too from, you know, being an early, at, at an early age, and especially now too, as I'm talking, I'm wondering if today's youth, uh, you know, who are, are stuck on their phones, right? And, <laughs> and really don't get outside like we did as kids, how much that's going to impact the next generation of scientists. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something that we're talking about. I mean, we are talking about, you know, raising awareness. There are distinct communities that that don't have an understanding of, you know, this career path at all. There's also just, there's a lot of things, you know, there, there isn't necessarily a ton of money in conservation science. It's Mm. not a, it's not an industry you get into, you know, for the money necessarily. And there are a lot of communities, especially communities of color, where if you're going to pursue a profession, you're, you know, you're, your goal is to make enough money to support yourself and likely your family. So certainly, you know, there needs to be more opportunity there for people to find um, environmental protection and environmental science highly profitable so that it's a, it is a viable career choice for them. And as well, I think changes need to be made in what type of education is required to be someone who works, you know, for the environment and to study the environment and protect it. You know, for a long, long time, like I said, there was this, you know, linear career path that included a lot of, you know, high level education. And I would argue that that's not necessarily always um, mandatory for someone to just work to learn more about the natural world. I think that there are lots of different types of knowledge and experience-based knowledge that can really contribute to this field. So there's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of barriers there. Some of the barriers are just, you know, racism <laughs> in yes. general when you're when a person of color is busy fighting racism and fighting stereotypes in whatever part of their life they might not be as available to explore alternative career paths right. period you know so there's some of these very large scale issues that need to be knocked down as well as um you know more achievable um, things like just raising awareness about this profession. So that said, you know what? What <laughs> suggestions would you like to share with the young women listening and, and and men too, of course, who have an interest in the sciences and maybe even even so for the the too for the parents, right, of of young girls and boys who are listening who want to expose their kids to sciences, like yours truly. <laughs> Yeah, full disclosure, you're interested in this. Yeah. So my first piece of advice and probably my biggest one is for parents to understand that being a scientist does not necessarily mean working in a laboratory in a white lab coat. Absolutely. Absolutely can. And that is super important. And there's even a way that conservation scientists um, do lab work. It happens all the time. But the term scientist is an extremely broad term and there is probably some aspect Thousands of science of that can right? yeah okay. that can appeal to almost anybody and so that was something that i you know learned the hard way and i think a lot of people end up learning the hard way a lot of people think you know okay if i'm going to be a biologist that means i'm going to be a doctor and i'm going to you know study biology at a micro level what's happening within a body you know within you know an organ or with you know at the cellular level. And I think it's really important for parents to understand that there's this field of macrobiology where you're studying the organism itself, you know, in its entirety and its wholeness and, you know, the animal itself. And then even at a bigger level, you know, ecology. Ecology as essentially the definition is the study of organisms and their interaction with their environment. So that you know, to some people is very fascinating to yours truly. It really is. And um, essentially, I think it's just important for parents to encourage their kids to explore, you know, what type of science speaks to them the most. You know, 
not to discount, there's also social sciences. I mean, that's a thing, exploring humans and the way humans interact with their environment. All of this contributes to our understanding of the natural world and, and how it works. And there's really a need for a more interdisciplinary nature for this. So that that's my that's my one piece of advice. I just think that um, people shouldn't necessarily shy away from um, thinking of science as, as something really, really large and complex. And I have one more thing yes. that comes to mind. Um, and this is something much more personal, but I uh, spent many, many, many years, especially in high school, not necessarily performing very well in my classes. So I didn't get outstanding grades when I was younger, Mm. um, especially in my science and math classes. And because of that, I didn't necessarily think that I should pursue science. (laughs) It wasn't apparent to me that this was a strength of mine. And certainly, you know, when it came to my parents who, you know, were a tremendous influence in my life, you know, they felt that I had strengths in other areas that I should pursue. And as it turned out, I, you know, I continued, you know, exploring science and getting into it more and more. And I always had a passion for it, even if it wasn't the class that gave you straight A's. I mean, through college, through grad school, I wasn't a straight A student when it came to the sciences and math. But I tried really hard and I really, really, really liked it. And eventually I got to a level where I found that, you know, outside of the classroom, my my critical thinking skills and my performance and my ability to just gain experience, you know, in the hands-on aspect of science was really what what made me a better scientist and what drove me further and what got me the recommendations and the opportunities and eventually the jobs. But I think there's a lesson there. And the lesson is that, you know, just because you're not necessarily the absolute top of your class and something doesn't mean that that career path isn't for you. If that had been the case, I would have never ended up being a scientist. I probably would have ended up in music or something, which could have been great. But I'm really, really happy that I kept going despite, you know, the evidence that maybe I, you know, I wasn't made for this career. Ray, thank you for all this amazing wisdom you're sharing. (laughs) I'm doing my best. You're absolutely welcome. I am so inspired by and blessed by your words in this episode. You're you're spreading that black girl magic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> I, know, I know some of the, the ladies in our community, many of our academics are loving on you right now as I hear this. Uh, I can just envision some of the tweets I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as a listener yourself, you know, we love to hear about the resources and tools of our trailblazers. Could you maybe share a book that you've read that have, has inspired you most? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So I, you know, (laughs) my gosh, I wish I read more. But when I do read, it's almost always fiction. Right. Um, I really like to lose myself in, you know, in fiction. And I have, you know, some favorite authors. Octavia Butler is one of them. And I also read a lot of Puerto Rican female authors and um, Indian women authors are some of my favorites. And my favorite book right now is called The God of Small Things. And the author's last name is Roy, R-O-Y. And it's a wonderful, beautifully, beautifully written story of two siblings, a brother and a sister. And I have to say it inspires me just because it's about the love that they have for each other. And I'm fortunate enough to have a younger brother who I'm extremely close with. And he and I have very different lives and live in very different places, but we love each other so much and are so, so, so supportive. And it's great to, you know, to read a book, even a fiction novel that just reinforces the importance of family um, and especially of those sibling relationships, because I know I couldn't live without my brother and he actually is an inspiration to me all the time. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Ray, what's something small you've done this month that you're proud of? 
something a little bit superficial that I've done this month is I have been tweeting more. Nice. So I, you know, I've found that it's important to, you know, share information and to share accomplishments and at least especially the work I'm doing to promote diversity um, in science. And Twitter is a really great way to connect with other people and to show them what's going on. So it's a tiny, fairly superficial thing, but I have spent the last about two weeks using my Twitter account and I really haven't done that in years. Good. So <laughs> this is good practice as a trail it's, as a trailblazer. Yes. You're going to get a lot of practice tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I am. I don't. I can't say that I'm stepping it up officially, but I have <laughs> stepped it up, and I am giving myself that credit. I did it. So that's where I probably share content the most and engage <laughs> the most. So you you'll definitely see quite a bit about your episode uh, on Twitter for. Oh, fantastic! Well, I'm ready. <laughs> I am ready to retweet. I'm <laughs> so I, I always like to ask, you know, for our trailblazers to share an app, software or tool that you use every day and you can't live without it. Yeah. Okay. Certainly. So I, um, I'm a New Yorker and I have a pretty short commute actually from home, um, uptown in Harlem to the Upper West Side where the Natural History Museum is. And during that commute, I'm usually tempted to check my email on my phone or, you know, listen to music or something like that, which is all fine. But I've also found it really helpful to um, open an app and my app is called Day One. And it's a journal, actually. It's a, you know, it's an app that essentially allows you to submit short or long journal entries with lots of different additions to it. So you can add media or you can, you know, record your journal entry using, you know, a voice memo feature. And it really helps me because journaling is something that I find extremely important um, and dear to me. When I go back and look at journal entries I wrote as a kid, it's really, really helpful to me to even just understand myself and my own growth. But I've been terrible about keeping a journal it's hard. In, my adult, in my adult life. Yeah, it's really hard. It's hard. Um, you know, it's, I have, admittedly, it's less hard in the field. It's actually a great time, you know, when you're camping for months at a time. It's That's easy to keep a journal. But in my uh, hectic urban life, I don't do a great job. So day one <laughs> is a great app that I recommend to people that allows me to, you know, to jot down my feelings and my thoughts. And even if I'm not able to type it with my hands, I can actually just speak the audio. entries and record the audio and it just translates it to text. Oh, it does. Nah, mm -hmm. it. And it's been really helpful for me to just um, keep track of my life and my feelings. That could be an app for authors to use, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if there's a way that you can just like speak off the top of your head and, right. you know, not have to be careful with crafting your words and typing them with your thumbs. Listen, I'm all for it. <laughs> you know, I've been trying to do the same this year with journaling. Uh, I was re I, can I can't think of what book it was, but it was encouraging me to to you know, begin a daily journal. And one of the things I'll do is even if I don't have a lot to add, I just yeah. get in the habit of even mm -hmm. writing a sentence or two on mm -hmm. the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it encourages me to, to continue the habit. And on those days that I have a lot more to share, then I can type away. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it, it's a difficult task to, to be disciplined about, you know, maintaining it really for is. Sure. And especially, you know, for people who have a hectic professional career, you know, people who have kids <laughs> or, you know, or whatever it is, there's always kind of an excuse not to or, you know, maybe you're just 
you know, whenever you look at your phone, you want to look at social media or whatever, which is great. But I think I agree with you, Stephen. It's important to take time to check in with yourself and and record some of those profound thoughts you might be having um, that are personal to you. And, you know, even if you never go back and look at them, it's essentially a form of therapy or mindfulness or meditation even Yes. um, to do that, you know, consistently. Yes, absolutely. Great resources here, Blazonation. If you're listening in the gym or in the car and you can't write these these resources down, don't worry about it. Uh, when you get to a PC or you get to your phone at a later point, you can hop on over to tbpod.com. And I'm going to make sure I share all of Ray's uh, resources her, on our show notes page. You can access that at tbpod.com. Ray, I'd love to invite you as we get set to wrap up here uh, to maybe share one action that all our aspiring trailblazers listening in right now should take this week to help them blaze their trail? Yeah, that's, it's such a good question. And I'm going to give an action that might sound fairly intimidating, but it's something that I actually just did myself. So (laughs) in general, in general, the action is to be brave. (laughs) Um, But specifically, um, what I encourage people to do this week is to find the individual who is at the very top of wherever you are. If you're at an organization or if you're at an academic institution or whatever it is, the, the president, the CEO, you know, whoever that might be, find that person and get on their schedule. So if that person has no idea who you are, and in the case for me, the you know, the president of the place where I work has no idea who I am, I recently emailed her administrative assistant and asked to be put on this person's schedule so that I can come in and introduce myself. Nice. Um, And, you know, you might work at a place with thousands and thousands of employees, or you might work at a place where you interact with the, you know, top individual every day. But I think it's always important to have a relationship with the person who is the most large and in charge. You absolutely never know when that might come in handy. And so it worked for me, you know, when I reached out to the administrative assistant and said, is there 10 minutes in the president's schedule in the next week or two that I could pop in and introduce myself and, you know, and just chat with her and ask her some advice? You know, the answer is so rarely going to be no. And I think it can only elevate you even more. So that is the advice that I would give to listeners. Just it takes a little bit of bravery if you feel uncomfortable, but I think it's absolutely worth it. I love that. I love that. I'm going to encourage everyone listening to take Ray up on that challenge and and definitely take that action. Ray, tell us how we can stay connected to you. And we'll go ahead and wrap up for today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, again, am a conservation biologist at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, if you Google me, you can probably find my page there. Please swing by the museum anytime. It's a great institution and I encourage you to look for me there. But again, on social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ray Wingrant, all one word. Um, And I'm also on Facebook. So please look out for all of those places and you can link to my website. Ray, from the minute we connected, I knew your story would be one I wanted to share. Without question, I feel that your words here in in this conversation that we're having will absolutely impact many people listening and and I hope you know inspire some of the young girls and boys who have a chance to hear your story to to maybe look to biology and look to the environmental sciences you know because of the words of Dr. Raylan Grant uh so so thank you you know we're eternally grateful to you for sharing your message here on the Trailblazers podcast 
Well, thank you in return. It's been so wonderful. And I'm a big fan of all of the amazing, amazing people who have been interviewed on this show. And I am just so fortunate to be considered one of the trailblazers here. So thank you so much, Stephen, for putting this together. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tbpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode new episodes are released each and every monday by about 5 a.m eastern trailblazers jump off this podcast today go find a way to rise above go way beyond and keep blazing your trail cheers